When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pineapple Pizza Podcast discusses the histories, cultures, and beliefs of regions around the world. These stories often contain mature and sometimes disturbing content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza Podcast, where we serve up delicious slices of mythology, cryptozoology, and urban legends. It's an interesting combination of flavors. Weird, but it works. Today's special is a three-course meal of Irish urban legends sure to delight. I'm your hostess, Lindsay, and with me are the awesome and hilarious Ashley and Emily. Hey. What's up? You hear about Pluto? (laughs) I did. That's messed up. My pants are already off. (laughs) I knew I was going to be seeing your face today, so. (laughs) That's why I'm in a tank top today. (laughs) Showing some shoulder. I'm in a tank top because my boobs are sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) Boobs what sucks, man. I I really wish I had a smaller chest, like pretty much all the time, but especially when it's hot out. Yeah, I feel that. I can tell you, as a founding member of the Itty Bitty Titty Committee, it doesn't matter how small they are, they still sweat like crazy. I've got, like, an entire swimming pool in here. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I, like, take off my bra at the end of the evening, and I'm just like, God, what happened in there? (laughs) (laughs) Michael Phelps pops his head up. (laughs) How did I get here? (laughs) Like, there's a killer whale, like, swimming up. It's fine. (laughs) This is what we all wanted to happen. (laughs) An orca just comes out and just like, dives back in. (laughs) That whale sound was good. It's just free willy all up in here. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I need to drop a couple pounds. Just sweat them off right now. Sweat them off. (laughs) So hot. Interestingly enough, Uh, What we're talking about feeds into quite nicely my first dish. So uh, today's appetizer is more (laughs) mysterious than it is moist. Oh, no. Oh, no. no. (laughs) Moist in your mouth. Mm. Even though I hate that word so much, I was like, I have to use it. Now I want to say it even more. I will try not to. So the first, our appetizer today involves the Lady of the Lake. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, I'm excited. Outside Limerick, travel to... Oh, God damn it. I didn't translate this one. Oh, <laughs> Here's the thing. No one else can see her face, but it's just so good right now. It's, oh. it's, the, it's the melty thinking face. Wow. <laughs> wow. Melt man with the power to melt. <laughs> Anybody who does not, who never watched Kablam, hates I, me I right now. I caught the reference. 
All right, I'm just going to go for it. And if it's wrong, I'm sorry, Ireland. I I blame the internet and my lack of true Irish uh, upbringing, even though I'm a quarter Irish. So, outside Limerick, travel to Currachase Forest Park, where you'll find the ruins of Currachase Manor, the setting of today's starter. Even though it's now shuttered and spooky, this once elegant manor sticks out from the greenery of the forest. Croches is a 774-acre forested park that includes a variety of architectural sites, sorry, archaeological sites. It has a cairn, two enclosures, three ring forts, which were Bronze Age fortified developments, a standing stone, which is a monolith from the mid-Bronze Age. Oh, that's so cool. And the 18th century home at the center of our story that was built at the site of Corag Castle. The manor was built in 1657 by Vare Hunt, a descendant of the Earl of Oxford, who was an officer in Oliver Cromwell's army. Oh, fucking Cromwell. I that know. son of a bitch. Right? I know. Fucking hate that guy. That asshat. Vare was granted the land by Cromwell as one of his plantations. In fact, the Hunt slash de Vare family would retain ownership of the land and property for the next 300 years until 1957. Dang. I know. The name of the property changed in 1833 when the owner, Aubrey Hunt, changed his surname. It was at that time that he changed the name of the property from Coreg to Coreg Chase. Aubrey married Mary Spring Rice, with whom he had eight children, one of which was famous poet Aubrey de Vere, who was born in the manor in 1814. That's too many kids. I know. <laughs> I feel so bad for her. She had to give birth to all eight of those kids. Oh, no. No I know. pain medication. Oh no. Yeah. Do you, do you do you feel like by maybe number five, six, it's like those uh, t-shirt cannons? <laughs> <laughs> Fire in the hole. Basketball game. <laughs> Here's number seven. I am so underqualified to answer that question. <laughs> the home was once the inspiration for Alfred. Laurie Tennyson's poem, Lady Clara Vere de Vere. Tennyson claimed to have seen the figure of the ghostly lady of the lake during a visit to the home, which he was a frequent visitor of. He stated that he saw the mystical arm of the lady of the lake rise above the water. Question. Did that watery tart throw a sword at him? <laughs> he didn't. He is not. He is not the true king. He did not gain Excalibur. <laughs> she kept that shit to herself. <laughs> a century later, during a Christmas party that was being held at the estate, a loud cry of anguish rang through the home along with a storm that frightened all the occupants of the room. Looking out the window to the artificial lake on the east side of the home, they saw the redly glowing figure of a woman pointing her finger at the home. Which one? <laughs> I'm hoping it was the first one but I also am secretly hoping it was the middle one I'm going to go out on a limb and say pointer I'm assuming it's pointer 
<laughs> Shortly after this, a tree was said to have crashed through the window and knocked over the candelabra, which started the fire that destroyed the once beautiful estate in 1941. Since then, it's believed that her spirit can be seen every Christmas Eve in the form of a burning woman floating upon the water of the lake nearby. Pretty badass. I'm just saying. Mmm, Christmas lights. (laughs) (laughs) I am my own tree. (laughs) She is also said to roam the grounds at night and even walk on water in the nearby lake. To this day, no one is sure who she is, what happened to her, and why she continues to haunt the grounds of Cara Chase. Joan Wynne Jones, Nee de Vere, wrote in a book published in 1983 that the house had a number of ghosts prior to the fire that destroyed it in 1941. She told of strange knockings on her bedroom door that she heard as a child while living in the home. There would also be times late at night when a noise like the sound of all of the fire irons and coal shuttles that were being thrown down the stairs would fill the house. Mm-mm. That'd be some loud ass noises. Oh my god, you would shit bricks. Oh my god. <laughs> that would be so scary. Joan described one day sitting on a little hill near her home when out of the blue the forms of a small man and woman, who appeared quite old, appeared in front of her. She described the man's dress as dark green with brass buttons. When she told the housekeeper's daughter what she'd seen, she was warned, quote, If you had seen what I saw there, you would never have gone near that place. End quote. Joan never found out what she meant by that statement. On another occasion, she wrote, quote, I also heard most desolate moan, moans and sobbings coming apparently from a blocked up doorway. End quote. It was Dwight Schrute after Angela <laughs> broke up with him. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> I don't think they had any beats on the property. I don't know if they're native to Ireland. <laughs> One time they had visitors, a young boy and his mother, who stayed overnight at the house. The boy, who slept in a room by himself, the next morning told his mother that, quote, a strange little boy came to play with me last night. Nope. We played together, but he left in the morning, end quote. No, that's mm-hmm. never good. It's the devil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the boy described him as wearing strangely dated clothes. His mother warned him not to play with the child again if he should come back. Because, of course, just let the kid stay in the room by himself again. The following day, her son said to her, quote, I told the other little boy what you said, and he looked very sad, but went away, end quote. Which makes me feel kind of bad. <laughs> but also a demon. Here's the thing. Ghost children, you can't trust them because, like, it's probably a demon. Or if it's not a demon, like, it's probably going to be like, you have to stay and play with me forever. And then it kills your child. Mm-hmm. Oh, gross. Don't like that. You're like, I hear this stuff all the time, but it's probably mm-hmm. just horror movies. But also, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Don't yeah. trust them. <laughs> Years later, alterations were being done on the home that the young boy had stayed in, and specifically the room where he slept. Under the floorboards was discovered a coffin that held the skeleton of a child. Ew! No. No. Like, seriously? hmm Nope. Ghosts are real. It's a thing. They're real. 
Today, all that remains of the manor are the outer walls, the cellars of which are home to the lesser horseshoe bat population every year when they hibernate. Oh, but I like bats. In fact, it's the largest known site in County Limerick for this protected species of bat, making the area part of the EU Habitats Directive. Oh, that's cool. I thought that was really cool. Horseshoe bat? Like, why? Why does it? Why? Yeah. I kind of want to know what the lesser horseshoe bat looks like. I'm going to Google Google it it. because if I don't know, I'm going to (laughs) cry. Lesser horseshoe bat. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, they're adorable. They've got little scrunch vices. Oh. It looks like it's wearing like um, a, a fur stole around its neck. I love it. It's a diva. It's a diva. It's a diva. And they're very rare. So they're like endangered. So that's why it's a protected area. Look at those ears. Sweet bat baby. Aw. We're going to have to include pictures of them. I love bats. Those are going on Instagram. Look for the horseshoe bat pictures on Instagram. Yep. They're sassy stoles. (laughs) I'm a diva. (laughs) Beyonce ain't got nothing on me. Mm. (laughs) Well, you know who does have something on you still, though? Baron Zemo, because that bitch (laughs) is a diva. (laughs) For real. So in 1957... The home and land, which includes a pet cemetery that houses the cats, dogs, and horses that once belonged to the Hunt slash Devere family. Don't like pet cemeteries, thanks to Stephen King. Nope. Were purchased by the state, the state's Irish Forestry Division, which was a st- and it was established as a national forest park and became a special area of conservation in the 1970s. The land became a large-scale tree planting spot in the 19th century, and the woodlands surrounding the ruins include a mix of deciduous and coniferous trees with a variety of oak, sycamore, hornbeam, Scots pine, beech, ash, and hazel. It also hosts exotic shrub thickets that contain snowberry and laurel bushes. Oh, sounds lovely. I did that for you, Emily. Thank you. I was thinking about how pretty that sounds. It is very lovely. If you look at pictures of this park, it is extremely lovely. I haven't heard the word deciduous since like the sixth grade. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Today, the land offers a variety of trails for families, walkers, and outdoor enthusiasts. It includes eight kilometers or five miles worth of trails. And some trails are even suitable for wheelchair users, cycling, and strollers. Oh, that was nice. really cool. Yeah. So, so you can go and check out this creepy ass lake. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe see a flaming ghost lady. <laughs> you better go with the motorized wheelchair <laughs> if you need to get out of there fast. <laughs> no, I just picture somebody being like, golly gee, Scoob, and it's like slowly trying to run away from the flaming ghost. <laughs> I'm over here imagining um, like a just a couple of nice like a nice couple with their kids walking down the path and then coming the opposite direction like as fast as the motorized chair will go is like a little old like silver haired lady and she's like we gotta get the fuck out of here they're just like what and the kids are like oh she said a bad word (laughs) 
And the parents are like, we'll talk about this later, little Jimmy. We gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> so ingredients for this dish were sourced from Abandoned Ireland, an article by Mainshin by Mainshin Siga entitled The Ghost of Currug Chase, a few articles from Ask About Ireland, The History of Currug Chase, Wikipedia, and Wilderness Ireland's website. And I apologize again because I probably said that wrong, but I did my best. Now sit tight. I'm going to check on the main course and we'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Kelly. And I'm Emily, and we're from Whining About History. Ever notice how women seem to be missed, forgotten, or maybe even purposely left out of history books? We did, so we decided to take the his out of history and make it herstory. Each episode, we discuss the lives and general awesomeness of these historical wonder women, all while having a glass of wine. Or maybe a bottle. Come join us on all of your favorite podcast platforms at WAHpod on Instagram, WAH underscore pod on Twitter, and at Whining About History. Remember, that's no H or E in whining. See you you soon. soon. Cheers! Thanks for waiting. Careful, this main course is going to be a hot one. Oh. So wait, is it Chris Evans? I wish he was in the story. He would make it ten times hotter. I would be, like, passed out from, <laughs> like, being overheated then. <laughs> Chris Evans just slides right into Lindsay's screenshot there. <laughs> and then Ashley's got the vapors and she passes out. If he even looked at me, I would be unconscious. Good luck waking me up. <laughs> we just drag you by your ankles out of there. Yeah. <laughs> that sound effect. <laughs> That's the sound everybody makes when you drag it out of places. (laughs) She would know better than anyone. Not that she's done any murders. I mean, allegedly. (laughs) In quotes. I'm assuming, quote unquote, that that's the sound it makes. (laughs) On that note, looking for an amazing view of Dublin? Follow the beautiful forest trails in the Dublin Mountains of Montpelier, also known as Montpelier Hill, where you'll find the remains of a stone hunting lodge that's at the center of one of Ireland's darkest secrets, the Hellfire Club. Oh, That's exciting. Have you heard of this, Ashley? I know exactly one thing about the Hellfire Club. And that is that Jess mentioned it to me one time, and it has to do with Ireland. <laughs> That's all I remember. <laughs> well, we're going to go real deep into it. So hold on to your butts. <laughs> you can't say what you <laughs> And then pause, and then say hold on to your butts. You can't. I mean, buckle up, because we're going to go for a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to get up in some fire. Oh, God. Watch your pearls, ladies. We're going in. (laughs) The haunted ruins of this stone building are all that remains of the Irish Hellfire Club, a group of supposed Satanists and devil worshippers who would regularly invite Satan to join them each evening for dinner and hold black masses. Surprisingly enough, the members were the elite of society, including peers of the realm, wealthy gentlemen and artists, not to mention high-ranking army officers. Over the years, the legends surrounding the Hellfire Club have altered, 
from dealings with the devil to human sacrifice and, of course, orgies, because why not? In fact, so many tales have been told about the Irish Hellfire Club that it's hard to separate fact from friction. So what really happened at the Hellfire Club? For thousands of years, the crest of Montpelier was the site of an ancient cairn, which is a mound of rough stones built as a memorial or landmark that included a passage grave. The cairn is believed to date back all the way to the Neolithic period, which was 4500 to 2000 BC. A passage grave or passage tomb is a structure that includes numerous burial chambers, usually covered in earth or protected by stones, that includes, as the name suggests, a narrow passage made of large stones in order to access the various chambers. That kind of sounds like a crypt. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very uh, DIY crypt. I'm going to sleep in there later. (laughs) Typically, the dead would be buried with objects significant to them, such as pins made of bone or antler, stone pendants, quartz or tools, or a form of pottery known as carochelware, which are red clay pots in a variety of sizes with a round bottom and decorated with stab and drag patterns. They're really pretty. This ancient burial ground just happened to be located on a very nice hill. So nice was this hill that in 1725, William Connolly, the Irish Speaker of the Commons, decided to purchase it and the surrounding Rathfarnham estate from Philip, Duke of Wharton. And why, pray tell, did William want this specific hill? Why, so he could build a new hunting lodge, of course. In fact, William decided it was a great idea to use the very stones from the sacred cairn to build his lodge. Oh, bad choices. Well, that's going to be haunted as fuck. So, (laughs) congrats. Do you want ghosts? Because that's how you get ghosts. Uh It sure is. Even though he used sacred ghost stones, the lodge was actually quite luxurious and included a hall and reception rooms on the first floor, which can no longer be accessed because the stairs were destroyed. Spoiler alert. The ground floor included the kitchens and servants' quarters, and the lodge itself was named Montpelier after the hill. When construction of the lodge was completed, the roof blew off shortly after, and many believed it was the work of the devil as a form of retribution for the destruction of the burial site. The roof was replaced with an arched stone roof that still stands. William himself died four years after the end of its construction in 1730, without ever really having a chance to use it. So back to Duke Philip. It turns out that the Duke was a notorious drunk, a drunk who also happened to be the founder of the original Hellfire Club in the United Kingdom in 1719. Philip thought that the club would be a hilarious way to mock the church, and to prove it, he appointed the devil himself as president of the club. It's unclear when and why William's hunting lodge became the base of operations for the Hellfire Club, as it's believed the club would meet at several different establishments, one of which being Eagle Tavern on Cork Hill near Dublin Castle. In 1735, the lodge would fall into the hands of the Irish Hellfire Club's founder, First Earl of Ross, Richard Parsons, who was known to dabble in black magic, as well as a portrait painter and actor named James Warsdale. Richard also happened to be the Grand Master of the First Irish Freemason Lodge in 1725, so I'm sensing a bit of a theme. 
Because <laughs> mm. the Freemasons were never involved in anything shady. <laughs> never. never. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Richard was, surprisingly, a bit of a piece of shit. <laughs> a bit of a piece of shit. He got off on shocking pretty much everyone he encountered, not to mention the fact that he was a gambler, habitual drunk, and our favorite, a womanizer. He believed himself to be a bit of a hilarious prankster and would regularly greet his neighbor, a member of the clergy named Dr. Madden, while fully nude. Okay, here's the thing. <laughs> Showing your junk without consent isn't a prank. It's a fucking crime. Just so you know. When his indulgences began, finally began to take their toll, Dr. Madden sent Richard a letter that contained a detailed list of all of his sins addressed to my lord. Richard, in a final act of scampery, sent the letter to Robert Fitzgerald, the Earl of Kildare, while on his deathbed. The Earl was outraged by the supposed attack on, of his character, which included, quote, whoring, gaming, drinking, rioting, turning the day into night, blaspheming his maker, and in short, all matter of wickedness, end quote. I've done a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> Same. So the Earl was so outraged that he confronted Dr. Madden about the letter. By the time the two had connected and had and the matter had been cleared up, Richard was already dead, having achieved his last laugh. Another member of the Hellfire Club was the Master of Revels himself, James Warsdale, who would go on to establish another Hellfire Club of his own in Askeaton in County Limerick. Known for his love of debauchery, James had a habit of attaching himself to wealthy members of the gentry. His notoriety was noted in print in 1740 when Matthew Gardnier and James Wynne published a scathing poem about his character that read as follows. Quote, Though Warsdale is for satire too obscure, must he uncensored artfully procure? Frequent as painter his employer's house, and thence delude his mistress or spouse? True to the lover's procreating cause, he breaks all ties, all hospital laws, and pimps resistless while his pencil draws. End quote. See, now that's an actual poem. Right? There's rhyming. It makes <laughs> sense. There's a rhythm. Just goes to prove when you really hate someone, you should channel that hate into art. And I still want that <laughs> demon picture. <laughs> The glass that James Warsdale used at the Hellfire Club meetings that took place at Eagle Tavern has survived and can be seen in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's engraved with, quote, James Warsdale, Master of the Revels, end quote, and the Hellfire Club, as well as a depiction of all the members seated with glasses except for one that is giving a toast. James left Dublin for Munster and eventually returned to England. He would also outlive almost all of his fellow club members. One of the more notorious members was a landowner named Simon Luttrell. Simon was the son of Henry Luttrell, who was a famous commander of the Jacobite forces in the war against William of Orange. Henry was believed to have betrayed his Jacobite comrades and was later murdered. After his father's death, Simon became a member of parliament and earned the rank of Baron Ernham of Luttrellstown. Legends state that in exchange for clearing his debts, he'd sell his soul to Satan within seven years. When the devil came to collect, 
Simon was supposedly somehow able to distract him long enough for him to flee. Whether it's true or not, what is true is that after the Irish Hellfire Club dissolved, he moved back to the UK, where he ruthlessly worked his way into becoming the first Earl of Carhampton. He also enjoyed the dubious honor of being named, quote, the worst man in England, end quote, in a poem titled <laughs> The Diabolian. Even after his pact with the devil, quote unquote, he somehow managed to live longer than all the other members of the Hellfire Club. Fourth Baron Henry Barry, the Lord of Santry, and another member of the club, was one of the youngest members and an angry drunk who is suspected of committing at least one murder. Oh, he apparently added notches on the barrel of his pistol each time he bested anyone in a duel. It's said that he burned a servant to death in his bed as he slept after he poured brandy over the man and set him on fire. <gasps> what a fucking twat. What a piece of shit. Even with charges like this against him, one way or another, Henry was always able to weasel his way out of trouble, usually by paying them off. Yeah, I was going to say, by being rich, it's not that hard to figure that out. Yep. <laughs> He was eventually taken to court after being convicted of stabbing another servant named Laughlin Murphy to death. On August 9th, 1738, at Henry's trial, it was discovered that he and his friends had spent the day drinking at Patrick Corrigan's Tavern in Palmerstown. At one point, Laughlin Murphy was invited by Henry to join the group in their drinking. As the night progressed, many of the members left until all that remained were a man named Mr. Humphreys, Laughlin and the crazy drunk Henry. Henry argued repeatedly with Mr. Humphreys and at several times attempted to pull out his sword, but was too drunk to do so. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's just that's just funny. Yeah, sometimes uh, you get a little performance issue if you have too much to drink. So yeah, <laughs> that's what I was kind of going for. Enraged at his ineptitude. He stormed out of the room and collided with Laughlin. He tossed Laughlin back and threatened to run through the next man who spoke. Unfortunately for Laughlin, he wished that no one might offend the noble lord. And with that uttered, Henry plunged his sword into Laughlin's side. Laughlin didn't die from the wound, but from an infection after several agonizing weeks of illness. Oh, yuck. That sucks. Even though he was protected by his powerful friends in the club, none of them wanted anything to do with him. Even with a guilty verdict, Henry was able to get a royal pardon in 1739, and his uncle paid off all of his debts. He spent the rest of his life living in exile in Nottingham, England, and died alone at the age of 40. Which, good, rid good riddance. So sad. Two other original members included Henry Ponsonby, who served in the Irish House of Commons, he was also colonel in the 37th Regiment of Foot. He and fellow member Henry Clements both lost their lives at the Battle of Fontenoy in 1745. That aside, what was actually done at the Hellfire Club? Well, drinking excessively was kind of required. And several accounts state that its members would enjoy a drink called Scalfine, which is a blend of hot whiskey and butter. So real good for the heart. Yeah. As well as the liver. I think we already figured out why they all died. So, <laughs> Heart disease. Check that off the list. These revelries would often end in the best possible way 
violence, and sexual assault, not to mention that one time that Henry Berry murdered somebody. It was expected that club members would openly mock the church. I mean, it's kind of a given with a name called Hellfire Club. But it's unclear if human sacrifices and pacts of the devil actually took place. It is noted that members would leave an empty chair at the table for Satan, but that appears to be the only real ritualistic aspect of the evening. It may not surprise you to learn that black cats played a huge part in the club. One story tells of a young man who went to investigate the goings-on at the club. He was found dead the next morning, and a local priest, along with a farmer who had been watching over the young man, went to the club to investigate after believing the man had been murdered. After entering the club, they found a banquet laid out and a huge black cat prowling the room. A black cat whose ears were shaped like horns. The priest, armed with holy water, attempted an exorcism that caused the cat to be torn apart. After leaving the building, the priest finds the man who had gone with him to investigate lying on the ground covered in deep scratches on his face and neck. A letter was found that is believed to have been from a member of the Hellfire Club. In this letter, they reference a quote-unquote sacrifice of maidens. But some believe that this refers more to their deflowering than to them actually being killed. This doesn't mean that bad shit didn't happen at the club. There are accounts that one of the rituals of the club included, and this is a trigger warning for animal lovers, the dousing of a cat in scalfine before setting it on fire. No. As you can probably tell, the club was basically an excuse for upper-class youth with too much time on their hands and an excess of funds to be able to play practical jokes, as you can tell, mainly aimed at the church, as well as gamble, treat women like shit, and drink a lot. So just be generally terrible human beings. Yep. Williams Hunting Lodge slash the Hellfire Clubhouse was at one point or another damaged by a fire in the 1750s, it's believed the origins of which have, like most of the rest of the tale, become a bit of a legend. One story says that William's son burnt it to the ground because he didn't want to have to renew the lease. Another says it was burned on purpose to add to its hellish appearance. It's also said that a footman spilled a drink on the coat of Burn Chapel Whaley, which prompted the Catholic-hating man to set the poor footman on fire. This fire, which I'm sure is part of what gave old Burn Chapel his charming moniker, reportedly engulfed the club in flames and killed several of its members, effectually putting an end to the club, as it were. In one story about the goings-on at the club, it's said that on a snowy night, a stranger came to the lodge seeking shelter from the cold and was invited in by the members so he could take part in their drinking and games of poker. While they were playing, one of the members dropped a card on the floor and when he bent down to pick it up, he happened to notice that their mysterious stranger had cloven hooves. It's said in one legend that the next day the lodge was found burned with just the stone shell it is today remaining. The only clue as to what happened was a trail of cloven hooves burned into the snow. Which sounds eerily familiar to something else. It really does. Anybody want to bet Satan was like... You guys are douchebags, and I don't want to be associated with you. I'm going to burn down all your shit. Either that or one of those guys there was like, oh shit, he's real. Burn it, burn it! <laughs> Just burn it! After the decline of the club and the fire at Montpelier, meetings were moved down the hill to Killikey Stewart's house. The trial of Henry Berry brought the Hellfire Club's activities to life, 
and many of its remaining members died in the 1745 Battle of Fontenoy. The club officially ended in 1760. The Hellfire Club Part Du came about thanks to old Burn Chapel's son, Buck, who instead dubbed it the Holy Fathers when he revived it in 1771. As if the first iteration wasn't bad enough, Buck and his fellow members took hell-raising up a notch if the stories are to be believed. There are rumors of kidnappings, murders, crazy wagers, and even cannibalism after they supposedly kill a farmer's daughter. Take that, Dad! Jesus, sounds like they're trying to become uh, skinwalkers. For sure. Buck had repairs made to the hunting lodge and meetings resumed there for 30 years. As Buck grew old, as we all do, he apparently felt the need to repent for all his wrongdoings. In memoirs he penned, he stated that he could feel the devil creeping down the aisle towards him as he was praying one night at church. The experience scared him so much that he left Ireland entirely and instead relocated to the Isle of Man, effectively ending the Irish Hellfire Club once and for all. In 1798, about seven years after the club officially disbanded, a man named Joseph Holt visited Mount Pillier Lodge and noted in his memoirs that it was starting to fall apart. Joseph was a general of the Society of the United Irishmen, and he noted that he spent a night in the ruins while on the lamb after the conclusion of the 1798 rebellion. The land that the lodge occupies was sold to the, by the Connolly clan in 1800 to a bookseller and politician named Luke White. The property passed to the Massey family of Limerick for several years via inheritance before it was eventually purchased by the state. You can still visit the remains of the hunting lodge at the crest of Montpellier, but beware if you do. A number of strange encounters have been reported there over the years, including having necklaces and bracelets pulled by unseen hands. Don't like that. Mm-mm. Nope. No. A woman named Tina Barco of the Paranormal Researchers Ireland shared an encounter at the Hellfire Club to newspaper The Sun as follows. Two things happened there on separate nights that I haven't been able to explain and that absolutely terrified me. We were up the Hellfire one night, a group of eight or ten of us. Around 1 a.m., we went in and put the equipment on the floor, vibration sensors and electromagnetic spectrum, or EMS equipment, and we know up there is no electricity. We stood in a circle, and the next minute there was a thud. It was like a vibration went through the whole building, and all the equipment went mental. One of the guys was in the hall, and he is a cynic, and he said a black shadow crossed him 100%, a tall black shadow. Another guy started getting sick, and then a girl said she heard a whisper in her ear, very clear, and it just said, get out. All in the course of one minute, chaos. That was the first time ever I called an end to the night and said we didn't feel safe. Today, members of the public are allowed to access the building that is maintained by Kuita, the Irish Forestry Board. You can visit it from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. April through September and 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. October through March. And ingredients for this dish were sourced from a 2021 Expert Vagabond article by Matthew Karsten, a 2020 Evoke article by Claire Highland, 2018 Ireland Before You Die article by Paris Donatella Callan, 2018 The Sun article by Nicola Barden, 2016 Irish Central website by Deborah Kelly, Barda Heritage website, Dublin website, Wikipedia, and World Abandoned. Ireland Before You Die. 
<laughs> what a name for a like places in Ireland to see before you die. <laughs> Ready for dessert? I'll be right back in one moment. Thanks for waiting. Our dessert dish is the perfect palate cleanser. The Connolly family of Castleton, yes, the same Connolly family that built the Hellfire Club, also built a house a little further down the hill of Montpelier in 1765 on Killikey Road. This home was originally a hunting lodge that was visited quite often by such famous people as George Moore, W.B. Yeats, Yeats, George Russell, and Catherine Tinnan. At one point, Countess Markievsk listed the Killikey House as a safe haven for British forces that were on the run from the Irish, since it had so many convenient exits. The 18th century farmhouse, also known as the Steward's House, would soon become the meeting place of displaced members of the Hellfire Club after their hunting lodge was damaged by fire. Over the years, the home would also serve as a dower house, which is a home for widows of the previous owners, aka a dowager estate, as well as the home for the caretakers of the nearby Killikey estate, which held a much grander home where the owners of the property, such as Lord Massey, resided. The house was under the control of the Masseys for a number of years, and during the tenure of the 8th Baron, the home became the residence of Maurice Fox, his steward. The Masseys later lost ownership of Killikey House in 1924, and the house's new owner became Margaret Fox, the daughter of Maurice. The story of the Black Cat of Killikey has been noted for centuries, but the story didn't become common knowledge until the home was purchased in 1968 by the O'Brien family, with the goal to revamp it into tea rooms and an arts center, while also restoring it to its former glory. Margaret O'Brien and her husband Nicholas were busy with a number of projects at the time of this renovation, so they allowed the workmen to live on site to keep the renovations on track. Unfortunately for the O'Briens, they'd soon find out that something was seriously wrong. It wasn't long after renovations began that the workmen started reporting some rather terrifying tales. Each night after dark, animal sounds could be heard within the walls of the home, and night after night they couldn't find any sign of an infestation or cause for the sounds. Many of the workmen refused to stay in the house as a result, reporting as well that certain spots in the building would be freezing cold and that a door with an 8-inch bolt would refuse to stay closed during the night, seemingly opening all on its own. A carpenter reported seeing the door open one night, and a huge black cat entered through it before glaring at him and disappearing. Understandably, Margaret thought at first that the workmen were just making things up. But one night when she visited the property to meet with the lead painter, she was told about even more stories of animals running loose on the property, but just in sound. Margaret finally decided that if she wanted to figure out what was actually going on, she'd need to stay at the property to experience it herself. Mm, maybe don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and on that night, she saw it for the first time, an enormous black cat sitting in the middle of the hall and blocking her way to her room. Now, when I say enormous, I mean enormous. She described it as a cat as large as a panther, with an evil gaze that spoke of its intelligence as well as its anger. As quickly as it appeared, it disappeared, and not long after, the lead painter also experienced a visit from the large cat that appeared and disappeared within a heavy mist. 
Other paranormal activities included the sound of ringing bells, which is kind of creepy just by itself. What kind of bells are we talking about? I don't think it's the cute ones that they would do with like the bell choir in church. Like I'm thinking it's like really <laughs> creepy bells. Okay, like church bells? Mm. Or is it more like Scrooge when the goat when Marley's first coming to visit him? Maybe. They didn't classify what sort of bells it was, but I'm assuming it's not like the cute and cheery like ding ding ding. Okay, well, for the purposes of my own amusement, I'm going to choose to imagine the sound of those little um, chimes they put on bicycles. It's going to be a bicycle bell. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, ding. ding, ding. I'm sure you're going to say it was a cowbell. No, but that would also be funny. (laughs) More cowbell. It's just the blue oyster cults just hanging out there. Seasons don't fear the reaper. The Irish Independent reported in their April 29, 1970 edition that Margaret, after spending two nights in the home, was terrified by strange noises each night and that her dogs were howling, quote, a weird howling as if they were scared out of their skins, end quote. Ew, that's gross. See, I said, don't stay there. Come on. (laughs) She wasn't listening to you, Ash. God damn it. (laughs) Margaret. Not only that, but each morning, she'd awake to discover tons of damage having been done to the home, with no evidence of a break-in having occurred. Further writings about the ghost cat were published in the Evening Herald and the Evening Press newspapers. In 1970, a TV crew from RTE, which is Radio Telefish Aaron, visited the house along with a clairvoyant named Sheila St. Clair to film a documentary of the paranormal activity. She communicated with the spirits through the use of automatic writing, which is a psychic activity where the medium can write written words without consciously controlling what's written. Artist Tom Massey was decorating one day to assist with the final stages when he saw a cat crouching in the hall, its red amber eyes staring at him. Later, he and a fellow artist also saw a small, crippled man who stood about three feet tall standing at the door that led into the hall. As the man went to retreat, the man transformed into a cat and disappeared. Tom would later go on to paint the famous picture of the black cat of Kiliki with glowing red eyes that hung in the house for several years. Understandably, Margaret became a believer. It wasn't long before she called a local priest and begged them to perform an exorcism on the property. For a time, it seemed as if the exorcism worked. There were no more tales of phantom animal sounds, The renovations were completed, and the art center opened. Unfortunately for Margaret, that piece wasn't going to last. One night, a bunch of drunken actors thought it would be a swell idea to conduct a seance to see if they could get the phantom feline to make an appearance. Oh, we're just going to make all the rookie mistakes now? (laughs) Fuck off! (laughs) It seemed they were successful, as the hauntings began once again worse than before. This time, the black cat was now joined by two evil spirits who took the form of nuns. Nuns that terrorized terrorized guests during visiting the art center. Okay, so just regular nuns then? That's what it sounds like to me. (laughs) This time, Margaret enlisted the help of a medium to figure out what the hell was causing all of the paranormal activity in the first place. 
The medium explained that the female spirits had at one time or another been attendants at one or more of the satanic cat-worshipping rituals that took place at the Hellfire Club, which was located just up the hill from the Killicky House and went by the names the nuns by the names of Blessed Margaret and Holy Mary. The medium went on to say that she believed the Killicky House had at one time or another either been owned by one of its members or served as a meeting house for its members, which, as I said before, it did. If you'll remember from our main course, they did in fact find a new place to meet after the hunting lodge went up in flames in the 1750s, before the first iteration of the group disbanded in the 1760s. And they did meet at what was then known as the Stewart's House, since it was owned by the Baron Stewart at the time. In 1971, a plumber who was called out to work on the property stumbled upon an unmarked grave that held a skeleton of a small figure. It was at first believed to be that of a child, but some believe it could be the remains of the dwarf seen roaming the property on occasion. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Many think the unfortunate man had been sacrificed by members of the Hellfire Club during some sort of satanic ritual. You guys are dicks. Don't sacrifice people. In 2012, a painting depicting a black cat bathed in flames was uncovered at another site that had close ties with the Hellfire Club, adding more credibility to the theory that they may be behind the creation-slash-conjuring of the infamous black cat of Killikey. Hmm. At one point, it was turned into a restaurant in the 1990s. Oh, no. No, don't do that. No, no, no. Before it closed in 2001, and it now serves as a privately owned home. The current owners attempted to demolish parts of the property in a bid to build holiday homes, but since the site has now been protected by the National Inventory of Architectural Heritage, and such alterations were quickly denied and prohibited by the South Dublin County Council. Rumors of the dark magic that roamed the place still continue to this day. That's creepy. I think it's interesting that I saw the cat in two places. Yeah. That's cool. And ingredients for this dish were sourced from a 2020 Shamrock Creek article by Olivia O'Mahony, a 2015 The Weirdo blog post, a 2014 Paranormal Encounters article by Andrew, 2013 South Dublin Library's Local Studies post, 2009 Herald Independent article by Claire Murphy, and Wikipedia. Those are my tasty dishes. I really liked the Lady of the Lake story. Yeah, I thought that was just kind of fun. Like, I was... Once I got the first, like, the main course and, like, the black cat one, which is tied to the Hellfire Club, I was, like, going to think about finding another one for the starter, but I was, like, I kind of, I really liked the Lady of the Lake one, so I kind of mm-hmm. wanted that it to be a cool. fun, a fun intro to the, the episode. Kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Oh, yeah. Made me think of that. wonder if that was inspired by the Lady of the Lake. Maybe. So I know there's like another Lady of the Lake story too. So when I was researching, I had to make sure I was like putting Ireland in there because there are other ones that are obviously in England <laughs> and stuff yeah. and other places in the UK. So I had to make sure I was researching the right one. There is an Excalibur in that one. So that's yes, that's the one that I know and I like it. Yes. So does anybody have anything good they like to share? Well, my good thing can be that my dog's being real cute right now. She is. Yeah, she is she's being, being adorable. She's actually been pretty good today, although she did really one up in my lap a minute ago, so I helped her get up here so she could see what was going on. And now she is playing with a toy fox, and that's real cute, too. Aww. 
Oh, it's the fox in the hand. Oh, that movie's movie's such a bummer. It is so so sad. sad. We go, Disney. Uh, Well, okay. So for mine, I've been working pretty hard on writing up my thesis, and it's coming along pretty well. I have two big presentations I have coming up for conferences, and I've been working on those. It's hard to put together a story for somebody else about science and try to keep it to a certain amount of time because mm-hmm. you just want to be like word vomit my science at somebody. Yep. But you can't do that. So I've been working on those those presentations and I think I figured out how I want to do it. So I kind of hit a nice little st- like a nice little stride with that and then working on my thesis. I'm happy with how it's going. I'm feeling good about it. I rearranged my chapters a little bit and they're looking good. And yeah, I'm feeling good. That's awesome. Also stressed, but good. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. yeah. I don't miss doing com well, okay, that's partially a lie. I kind of miss doing conferences, but the thing that I miss about it is at the actual like feedback part of it. I mm-hmm. don't miss like all the stress of trying to get it ready and make sure that it's the right length because it's a huge pain in the ass, especially mm-hmm. when nobody else ever has any idea what your research is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't like that. I hate, hate public speaking, which is funny as a a podcaster, but I have the worst stage fright. It terrifies me to stand in front of people and speak. I weirdly love it, even though I'm an introvert. (laughs) (laughs) I struggle with it, too. Everybody's got their thing, right? Yep. Um, My good thing is that yesterday I got to go to my nephew's birthday party and he turned five yes he turned five and I got to hold my youngest nephew and he fell asleep in my lap which was really cute so my my youngest nephew is one and a half and he's like this big big chubby little blob of a boy he's really fun and they they had um the like grocery store appropriate fireworks that aren't really fireworks. They're basically just like sparklers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they had some of those for the party and it was fun because I was holding my youngest nephew in my lap and we were watching that together and he would do this thing where he'd be like, Oh, are you just like kind of like <laughs> lean against me and be like, Oh, as we were like watching the fireworks together. So that was really Aww. cute. That's so cute. See, I don't even enjoy fireworks at all anymore, but like, I kind of like the idea of, like, seeing, like, smaller children watch them because they still, you know, think it's, like, wonderful and exciting and new. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just like, oh, please stop. <laughs> I know. It's so loud and it's so late. Yeah. Yeah, it was really fun because I was sitting, like, behind all the other kids that were watching it. So it was fun watching their reactions. They're like, yeah. like, oh, I really like the colors of that one. Or, like, that one was cool. Look at all those little sparkly bits. And so, yeah. It was fun watching them, their reactions to it. Yeah, see, I think I would get some enjoyment from that, like from watching some, like little kids reacting to it. I don't get any personal enjoyment from fireworks anymore. Yeah. Just kind really of a either. bummer. Makes me feel like I'm an old, crotchety person, like already. <laughs> yeah, all I can think about is like how freaked out my dog gets whenever yeah. like, people, like whenever like the yeah. super loud fireworks go off that's like all i can think about and of course 
where I live, there are people that will just like cross the river and get like the real fireworks in Wisconsin yep. and then they'll fire mm-hmm. them off in their backyards and stuff for like weeks after the 4th of July. So then I'm still hearing them like July 23rd, things like that. And just being like, God damn it. Just stop. We yeah. get that you love America. <laughs> Next, knock it weekend. Off. <laughs> Next weekend is going to be pure hell for me because our neighbors are like that too. Did you guys, I don't know if it happened near where you guys were, but last year because of COVID 4th of July celebrations were canceled everywhere. But here on 4th of July, luckily it was a, a well rainy year. So we, everything was wet. I wasn't worried about things being too dry, but just the sky, as far as you could see, it was all the way around. Everybody was setting off fireworks and it was so pretty. It was really, honestly, it was awe-inspiring. It was really cool to get to see just everywhere you turned, there was a show going on and, and they were all different. Mm-hmm. It was cool. We had, um, one of our biggest parks in the city, the police and the fire department went around and they made like these big circles Mm -hmm. that were like six feet apart from one another where families could like be sitting in the circle and then look up and watch the fireworks that they, that they did. And that was kind of fun. That was a new way of doing it that we hadn't really done before. So it was kind of nice to just kind of like lay on our backs and watch the fireworks above us and stuff. Although a few of them did get a little too close for comfort when they were coming down <laughs> where I was like, mm, maybe we'll be further back in the field next year. <laughs> oh, that might set my face on fire. <laughs> like, good thing my hair is tied back. This could have been a problem. So <laughs> could have looked like the lady of the lake. <laughs> well, I just did. I like stand up, start screaming and like feeling my arms around. <laughs> <laughs> start running so fast. You run across water. Oh, she walks on water. <laughs> it's Jesus. No, it's the lady on fire. <laughs> fire safety folks but not katniss everdeen yeah not nearly that cool not alicia keys either no nope. no nope. <laughs> <laughs> that girl is on fire please put her out somebody help <laughs> can we get an emt we need an emt <laughs> stop drop and roll ma'am ma'am <laughs> they just like throw me in the sand pit in like the playground just roll around cat poop everywhere that's what i was just thinking <laughs> I was I like, like smeared in animal feces and the oh, good girl. news is the fires out the bad news is you're gonna get infections <laughs> <laughs> the bad news is you smell like shit let me get the industrial hose out and start hosing me off this burns worse this burns worse <laughs> Now there's poop and all their wounds. On that <laughs> note. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> On that note, uh, before we close the pizzeria for the evening, <laughs> I'd like to share a review from one of our satisfied patrons. Paige shared the following review on Podchaser. I really enjoyed this show. You can tell the hosts are best friends, which makes listening to them a lot of fun. They've covered some really weird and interesting topics so far, and I'm looking forward to what's to come. Thank you, Paige. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are very weird, and we're glad that you noticed. (laughs) (laughs) We're glad that that's readily apparent. (laughs) Mission accomplished. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, uh, I think I'm going to close down the pizzeria. So thank you for visiting our beautiful pizzeria and enjoying a spicy slice of urban legends. Pineapple Pizza Podcast. We're sweet and cheesy, and not everyone understands us, but we're glad that you do? Question mark? 
If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, check out our Tee Public shop for some amazingly fun and funny merch. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, you can do that on buymeacoffee.com and buy us a fresh slice because we can never get enough of basically anything, if we're being honest. If you absolutely love the show and you want to check out some fantastic bonus content, you can become a donor on Patreon and earn all kinds of amazing benefits. We have three tiers to accommodate almost any budget. The $3 Mythbuster, $7 Cryptid Hunter, and $15 Storyteller. Become a patron today and start enjoying all the perks and extra content right away. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at PineAppPizzaPod. That's PineAppAppPizzaPod. You can also send us questions, comments, and topic ideas at pineappappizzapod at gmail.com. Remember, there's the two P's in app. Otherwise, you're emailing someone else, and I don't want to be held responsible for that. Thanks for stopping in for some deliciously weird morsels. And just remember, no matter how you slice it, you're awesome. And we love you.